Bad vibes for everyone all around, right? And so they get kind of shuffled off into retirement homes or die from social isolation. The best case scenario for the retiree is that it's like, well, then you just become a pure consumer for the rest of your life. Yo, what's going down, everybody? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden-Smith. And I'm Troy. He's back. He's back, everybody. He's back. Welcome <laughs> back, Troy. How was your birthday? It was pretty good. Yeah, got delicious yeah. food, saw a great movie, which will probably be a, a sticky leaves somewhere in the near future. Mm. Wonderful. A little Greek, some Greek absurdity. Uh, there was some absurd element to it, yeah, for sure. There was a Greek. There was a Greek guy behind it, yeah. There was a Greek guy behind it, yeah. I figured, you know, whenever you have like a Greek auteur at the helm, you're going to get some sort of cultural snapshot, you know, kind of always injected into whatever the art, the artifice piece is. So, uh, I still haven't seen Poor Things, but I'm looking forward to seeing it because it looks wild. So. Yeah, yeah, but I'm looking forward to discussing it with you. Even just the the element of it, it seems like Yorgos is now is no longer a Greek filmmaker, but is really a kind of world filmmaker. So, fucking a, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Did you like Dogtooth? Yes, I mean, yeah, yes. <laughs> I mean, can you I, like? I don't think I've, I've, do you I like Dogtooth? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the thing. I don't think that I've liked his movies anywhere near as much as I like Poor Things. Which mean not that I didn't oh, like them, but I liked Poor Things more than any of his other movies. Uh, it's both extremely likable and also thought provoking and great uh, in other evaluative, mm. you know. I've criteria. still not seen Killing Killing of a Sacred Deer, which I want. That was see, the hardest one I for have, me. <laughs> was it? Yeah, it's been a while. So Just more really remember, abstract but. and and awkward. Yeah, and it's the kind of thing that's not going to be as immediately engaging. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's been it's been a long time. I saw it back when it came out, which was what like six or seven years ago, maybe. Probably, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, don't quite remember it too much. All right. Well, cool. Well, welcome back, brother. Uh, so this week we are going to be talking about gerontocracy. That is, what's up with old people ruling the world? That's what we're going to be talking about. <laughs> um, so this is triggered by an essay by Samuel Moyne, who's somebody that I know Troy's been reading quite a bit of lately, because you read his book on liberalism uh, at a reading group, right, recently within your university? Uh, no, we were, we were considering uh, reading the book. We oh. have not read it yet. But I, I've, I've read some of it and read some bunch of articles. Uh, the, the book in question is Liberalism Against Itself. Um, so I've read some parts that were... Uh, more germane to my own work, um, and I don't okay. necessarily fully uh, back a lot of the claims um, that Moyne makes in the book. But I think the general area of study and, and some parts of the general thesis are, are really intriguing. And we can maybe okay. broach that subject if it becomes relevant in our discussion of old people. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So that's what we're going to get to in our main segment. Uh, what's the title of the article? Is it called like like? Why are old people stupid or something like that? What's it called? <laughs> it's called The Trouble with Old Men. <laughs> the Trouble with Old Men. <laughs> I don't know where you got old people are stupid from that. But <laughs> I don't know either. Uh, yeah. The Trouble with Old Men. Uh, I think it's because I watched the Jon Stewart clip uh, shortly after where he's roasting Biden and Trump for being oh, old. Yeah. 
yeah, is yeah, that yeah. worth watching? I've kind of tried to avoid it. I saw it because it came across my feed, and I got a little chuckle out of it. I think I've just moved past that type of approach to political comedy. Like, like it's just not for me anymore, which is fine, which is fine. Like, I was never a huge Daily Show watcher anyway the first time around. I found bits funny and periodic. Like, I would tune in every once in a while, and I would laugh, and I would enjoy. But it wasn't, like, something I, I looked forward to religiously or that I invested much of my identity into. So, like, I don't really have any much, much stakes in his return and, like, resurrecting this show. And I know I don't feel like somehow he's going to be breathing fresh air into a world that has been suffocating otherwise. You know what I mean? So I, I just don't, it doesn't really matter. But, yeah, I, it's a chuckle. You know, it's a chuckle. You know, he's a funny dude. He's got great comic timing. There's always clever writing. I love his performance style. But, like, you know, it, it's it's fine. And for the people that it will help and and give them kind of a critical edge and maybe some sort of salve in a time where there's a lot of negativity bombarding them, I'm sure that it's going to be valuable. But it's just not my thing. Yeah, I do. I, I don't like it when lefties, like, try to one-up each other by talking about how much they hate anybody even marginally to the right of them, um, yeah. especially in like media and stuff. Uh, that said, I do kind of feel like Jon Stewart jumped the shark with that like rally to restore sanity thing or whatever it was. Mm. Do you remember what I'm talking about? I do. I don't remember the specifics of it, but I do remember that. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's one of those things where it's like when you're an ironic comedian, um, there's, there's strengths and there's weaknesses to that approach, right? But an important point of that is that if you ever do a cringe thing, you've committed suicide hmm. um, with your approach, right? Because like the opposite of ironies is, is is cringe in a lot of ways. Ironies, <laughs> you know, the ultimate self-awareness and cringe is the complete lacking of self-awareness, right? So if you do that, you just, you just got to admit that, you know, like your career's over. And you got to kind of just, like, like we'll talk about with a gerontocracy, like you need to have a norm where you just walk outside the city and, and jump off of a bridge hmm. to, you know, escape the shame that comes from uh, no longer being able to function in your role. So it's an important point, I think, that not only in political rule, but in all areas of our culture, people can't be shamed into leaving. It seems like that's hmm. one of the reasons why we have a gerontocracy is because we don't have the norms <laughs> around like shame and embarrassment where someone would just be <laughs> like, man, you know how, like, I don't know if this is actually true, but I, you watch Sons of Anarchy, right? That's a very you mm-hmm. show, I feel like. Yeah. When, um, what's his name, uh, is the the leader of the biker gang, and he can't, he gets, like, arthritis or something, and he can't ride his bike anymore. Oh, yeah. And it's just like, well, that's it. It's over. And everyone just knows. Yep, it's over. He can't lead anymore. And he knows it. There's no fighting about it. There's no like, well, actually, does it really matter if I can ride? Like, I'm still the best leader. Like, I have the other skills that are necessary. Nope. That's it. Standard is you can't ride your bike. You're done. Like, yeah. there's there's some value in that, right? We need stuff like that. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait to talk about this a little bit more because I think there's actually an element of, like, dehumanization in that if you are somehow, like, just de facto immune from shame or de facto immune from like finding those limits, I think that actually is an indication that you are actually treated as something that is not human. You know, you become either a cog in the machine or you become 
like an organ for power or an organ for the flow of capital or something along those lines. And we, we can kind of flesh some of those ideas out. But I do think there's something like essentially dehumanizing in that, which I think is actually a, an indication of a greater symptomatic sickness in a, in a, in a sociopolitical system. But um, yeah, actually, so we're going to talk really quick. I just want to put a, yeah. put a flag on that really quick. I've done a little bit of work on like um, what evil is and a kind of thesis that I'm playing around with is that evil is, I don't have a term for it yet, but it's like a reverse or an inverted kind of dehumanization where normally we talk about dehumanization as being uh, something that functions to oppress uh, others by dehumanizing the uh, the oppressed person, right? But evil is a kind of dehumanization that happens like at the top. So someone sort of de-agentifies de- themselves in important ways. Mm. So they're no longer um, sort of taking the normal kinds of responsibility for their actions. Mm-hmm. That's a kind of dehumanization, like no, no longer like seeing yourself connected intimately with your actions. That usually happens when you like fully ingratiate into like a larger social system or something like that, right? Um, mm. This is why political rulers are usually this kind of individual. And that's, there's a kind of evil that flows from um, that kind of dehumanization. So I think it's really interesting Ooh. to point out that there's, I never thought about it using the term dehumanization because I was thinking about agency more than humanization, but I think that might even be better to think about it as be, being uh, dehumanizing. Mm. That's good. It's interesting. Cool. Yeah. So um, yeah, looking forward to kind of flushing some of those ideas out a bit, but we do have a bit of housekeeping to just cover. Um, one is just make sure you give us a follow over on Insta or on Twitter, owls underscore at underscore Don. You can email us, owls at donpodcast at gmail.com. And Troy, what's up with uh, Patreon right now? We've still got some, we're still taking requests for topics. What's what's up with the Patreon situation? I think by the time you're listening to this, we'll probably stop taking um, recommendations for our next patron-sponsored episode, and very soon we'll have a, um, a poll-up of the potential topics for you to choose from. So, if you are a patron, you can um, go to the patreon.com slash dawn site and vote on the next patron-sponsored episode, and if you're not a patron, go ahead and sign up um, at the lowest level, and you get access to uh, that benefit, being able to vote on the next patron-sponsored episode. Speaking of that, we do want to uh, thank uh, patrons who have signed up recently. So our most recent patron who signed up a few days ago is Dukakis, which is cool. Oh, did Dukakis? Didn't we already have Dukakis? Oh, did we? Yeah, we th- we thanked Dukakis because we talked about Michael Michael Dukakis and oh, that's a couple right. of episodes ago. Unless that's right, they our join date says four days ago. <laughs> oh, so maybe they unjoined and rejoined at a different tier or something. Oh, maybe. That's right. Or maybe, you're totally right. Maybe all the Dukakises, <laughs> they heard that Dukakis had signed up, and all the Dukakises are now coming out of the woodwork and just fucking signing up. So thank That's you right. to the Dukakis family. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, something like that. Well, honestly, thank you all for, for those of you who are patrons. And for those of you who are not, thank you for being subscribers and tuning in. Um, if you aren't able to or not willing to or just not interested in, in throwing us pennies, one thing that would be awesome is if you could give us like a rating and a review over at like Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your pods. It just helps kind of get the word out 
on uh, on the podcast. So anyway, all the bullshit admin stuff aside, let's get into things. It's time for the shitty minute. This is where one of us gets to rant and rave about something that's been pissing us off. Troy, it's been a couple weeks. You've had a couple of good weeks though. Birthday, you got Valentine's Day. What could you possibly have to complain about, right? What could you <laughs> What could you possibly have? I mean, I know you went through snowpocalypse in uh, in in your area there, and you were snowed in for like a week. So maybe that sucks. But come on, man, life is good, right? Yeah, but you know I gotta say something for the shitty minute. So, <laughs> so there was this this tweet a few weeks ago, where the individual says, and I'm quoting, "The thing about Taylor Swift is that she so perfectly encapsulates through her lyrics oh. the interior lives of women. It's it's why we all can't stop listening. We're all saying, wait, you felt that way. We were feeling, we were all feeling this, this way too. Do men have someone like that? Did you see this this one? It went it went majorly viral." Yeah, I did see this one. <laughs> so there was a bunch of funny responses to that tweet about the idea of there being a Taylor Swift for men, embodying the interiority of men yeah. the same way that Taylor Swift does for women, right? My favorite one, though, was someone who said, guys will be like, uh, of course there's a Taylor Swift for men, and then post a picture of some guy who killed himself. Yeah, I was going to say Kurt Cobain. <laughs> <laughs> Well, here's the thing. Yeah. So yeah. I, I'm thinking about this in way too detailed a fashion. I don't think Kurt Cobain counts so much. Okay. Okay. Um, although maybe he does, because I'm not sure. Like, Cobain had a lot of um, a lot of lyrics from the first personal point of view, but I'm not sure he embodied the like interiority in the same way. But the angst. Um, I think his was more affective rather than conceptual. Very much so. Um, I was thinking, but the funny thing is. When I first was thinking about who's the Taylor Swift for men, I was thinking, well, I mean, Elliot Smith or Ian Curtis or Nick Drake or Jason Molina. Jason Molina, who I I think I introduced you to recently. I just just discovered him a few weeks ago. Fucking hell, man. Again, depressive, depressive, depressive. (laughs) All guys who killed themselves in the broad sense of killed themselves, which includes like drinking yourself to death and drugs and addiction and overdose yeah yeah so it's like oh my god it's like this person is actually correct like the taylor swift for men is just somebody who died at 36 (laughs) well let me ask you this do you think do you think that there's like this romantic idea of like living fast and flaming out or like taking yourself seriously and then flaming out that afflicts a certain man that would try to describe their interiority where there's like an aspirationalism and uh, something that would maybe kind of characterize an interiority of like a like today's woman that identifies with with whatever this memed concept that they're trying to work through you know something like that i mean yeah not the living fast part but definitely like those four figures that i named were all individuals who if you had told them or told audiences like yeah this person's not going to live past 40 and is going to die a pretty tragic death even in the prime of their songwriting careers for basically all of them um People would be like, "Yeah, that's not surprising, given their lyrics, right?" And that speaks to like a kind of sickness at the at the sort of conceptual level, uh, social conceptual level about like manhood in America or masculinity in America, right? Mm-hmm. The fact that those individuals are so easy to identify with your own interior life, and why many men come to those individuals to uh, or like are sort of cathexed with those individuals because of uh, it's sort of matching their own interior lives. That's pretty dark, man. <laughs> to think about. Mm. 
Um, I was trying to talk to some people about like, is there anybody currently who's who has a similar like? No one has the quite the same level of like, because Taylor Swift like um, clearly has hit a nerve, struck a nerve with the uh, able to write lyrics that so many people identify with in terms of their own um, like interior lives. There's no mm. direct analog for a male singer songwriter that I can think of, but like anybody who comes close. Someone told me um, like Zach Bryan might be that guy. And I like Zach Bryan a lot. Um, I don't know that he quite matches that, especially since I think Zach Bryan has a huge uh, women fan base. Um, mm. Nothing like proportional to the the number of like women to um, men ratio that like Taylor Swift has, unless you go back to some of those guys from the nineties um, or even like eighties and sixties in Nick Drake's case. So not sure there's a Taylor Swift for men. Curious what you think. Is it really as dark as like anybody who is the Taylor Swift for men is not going to be able to survive because the like taking on that mantle would make you just <laughs> go on a road to death and destruction. Yeah. Is there a more hopeful maybe, interpretation? <laughs> I mean, maybe there is, maybe there is like a sort of like death wish within, cause you know, if you think about it, like all of the religions that have been made by men have really ended in annihilation, right? Like, Nirvana means like the candles blown out, right? Uh, mm. Christian Christianity is like you basically just don't have feeling and passion and emotion anymore because that's all the bad stuff, and you just live in like this state of just like what endless, endless harmony where you're just essentially dead. Like the human experience is dead. So it, I kind of wonder if there is something about a, a, a masculine tendency towards annihilation that that we don't get to work through in healthy ways and so maybe we only get to deal with like the pathological expressions of it through these types of like depressive struggle frustration with the human predicament or with the human condition and maybe that's that's one of the things that 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 attracts you know socialized dudes i don't know what do you think yeah, and just, you know, something about the level of not just popularity, because all those individuals are kind of, to some degree, like indie artists, but um, other than, you know, like Kurt Cobain, but just um, the kind of, like, what's going to attract people to be not just fans or listeners, but super fans, to really identify and, like, memorize lyrics and, you know, go to the concerts and, um, like, take on a kind of um, identity with the artist. It's going to be the things that they feel the hardest, right? Mm. And it does seem like the these kinds of um, depressive male singer-songwriters are speaking to a thing that isn't able to be expressed in, in a different way. And so it's pent up. And then the release of that pent up, um, the pent up energy and those emotions means strong identity with the person because it's the only avenue in which to release that pent up those pent up emotions right mm. um so yeah i think it does speak to a kind of stickness the heart of masculinity in our culture right now and, which is and there's like sad there's like there's like a difference between that internal sickness and then somebody i'm trying to think of like maybe in a previous generation you could think of like someone like a bob dylan right but bob dylan as a sort mm. of like poet for the generation was speaking outward not not that there right. was no interiority, but it was much more that you would align with it in being frustrated with the the culture, being frustrated with society, 
Whereas I think what this person is commenting on is that Taylor Swift like does something to like hack our psychological experience of that interior life, you know, like that my desires and, and, and maybe it's also just a different framing of subjectivity. Maybe subjectivity, you know, when Dylan is the, the poet of, of the time is different than Taylor Swift as poet of the time. So maybe it's a different type of voice, you know, that someone, someone would really latch onto. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Could there be a Bob Dylan of the contemporary world? That, that, that I don't think that there really could be for many reasons, it seems like. Um, yeah, that seems to be able to both like marry the, the interior life with also um, commentary on the exterior and also be incredibly celebrated cultural figure at the critical mm. level as well. That's a marriage that probably isn't possible right now. Although maybe, you know, someone comes along that can do it, but it seems rather unlikely. Well, the thing with like Taylor Swift, it proves that she can't do it with how sanitized her political like position is, right? And it's kind of like she's taken the Michael Jordan line about how like even Republicans buy Nikes type of thing. She's taken that to the <laughs> nth degree where it's like she'll be like, go out and vote. But you know for a fact she's not going to come out and be like a hardcore supporter of BDS or like, you know, free Palestine or ceasefire. Like she has to be very careful with that sort of thing because they know that she's like a universal icon. She's a universal kind of consumer product. And so that's something very different than somebody like a Bob Dylan who could absolutely speak out very clearly against the Vietnam War or could speak out very clearly. Right. Which in a very different way. Yeah, brand management's a wholly different thing now than it was mm. then. Although you wonder yeah. if, if Bob Dylan had been, you know, going electric right now in 2024, <laughs> right? <laughs> what yeah. would that look like? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, really I mean, Bob Dylan I... going electric, Taylor Swift going indie folk. <laughs> kind of parallel. <laughs> well, have you heard Beyonce's new song? She's going country, so, she's, you know. She's going country, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So fucking hell, maybe. Yeah. Um, well, sick. Yeah, well, no, I did. What I you think, listeners. Curious to what everyone else thinks. Who's the Taylor Swift for men and why? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, does it have to be singer-songwriter? Like, does it have to be with... Is that kind of the point of it? It has to be singer-songwriter? Yeah, I think so. Unless you have a compelling reason otherwise. I think we're talking about singer-songwriters. Singer-songwriters have the kind... I mean, I guess uh, as long as they're like you know, vocalist lyricists, because there's a combination of the singing of the the lyrics, which, you know, reflect an interior life that seems to be the kind of function that we're talking about. Well, because I'm thinking, what about somebody like um, Donald Glover, like Childish Gambino? His his stuff is really introspective. And like, a lot of people didn't like his earlier work when he was, you know, being a bit more kind of um, like self-critical and, and talking about how he we were talking about this, I think, with Macon, right? Where he's like, you know, I'm not black enough for black culture, but I'm also not white because I'm clearly black and so I can't fit in kind of thing. But him talking about his frustrations and then his sexual desires and, and like uh, longings and things like that. So there was definitely something there. And then at the same time, then he comes out with something like This is America, which is a clear sort of commentary on on, on the black experience. So there's something like that that he kind of ticks a lot of those boxes that we were just talking about that Bob Dylan maybe was able to in a different time period. Yeah, I mean, I think he's probably too abstract to play this exact role. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it, it's, I think it's, I don't know his Childish Gambino catalog super well, other than like Awaken My Love, um, the soul record. But like, it seems mm. like he's kind of 
moved away from a lot of that stuff. He hasn't even made much music in the last several years. Um, and he's I don't too busy making that, great television. Yeah, he seems to sort of be devoted to <laughs> that, which is a wholly different kind of social role to play, right, as a celebrity. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, sick. Well, let's get into the uh, main segment here and talk about this Samuel Moyne article on why, why old people are stupid. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, any old people who are listening to a podcast. But if you're listening to yeah. a podcast, you're, you're functionally not old. That's ex- exactly that's exactly right. Now, yeah, so the trouble with old men. So, um, Troy, introduce this one since Moyne is more your boy. Yeah, so uh, Samuel Moyne, he's a political theorist. Um wrote this book uh, that came out, I think, a year or two ago, ago called um, Liberalism Against Itself. And the, the book basically argues that there was a kind of important sea change within political liberalism around um, the Cold War, where there was a kind of uh, perfectionism, like an ethical perfectionism within liberalism in its earlier history, and that that was completely axed off of liberalism around the advent of the Cold War. Uh, and the kind of liberalism which followed was kind of was basically empty um, of certain features which helped it function at least somewhat well beforehand. And that's sort of the way he explains at the conceptual or theoretical level why um, liberalism has sort of been destroying itself um, since does, then. Does he draw a connection between like liberal perfectionism and like Finney and, and like Wesleyan traditions? I don't think so. I mean, perfectionism has its its roots in in sort of um, secular ethics, too. So he's not using it like in the in the theological sense that like a Wesleyan would. I don't know if he if okay. he ever does like compare them though. That would be interesting to do. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I've only ever read either like Twitter threads or little think pieces that either he's written or that people have written in response to him. So I'm not as familiar with the ins and outs of his argument. And then I think you and I have talked a little bit about it and you've mentioned it before. But so I'm not as um, I'm not as in on the Moyne inside circle as you are with regards to that book. So I'm, I'm curious to kind of see one how your project develops a little bit more, but also to kind of maybe dig into that a little bit more as I'm able to over the over the months and years or whatever. Yeah. If you're, if you're at all as a listener, um, interested in like Corey Robbins work, who, um, is a yeah, exactly. political scientist, um, who I really, who I really like, um, they're sort of similar and they, they have, um, similar sort of approaches to both defending, but also, um, critically evaluating political liberalism and, you know, considering it to be multiply diversified in important ways, not seeing it as sort of a monolithic, um, political enterprise. Which I think is 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 very good, even if you don't think that the ultimate conclusions that they come to are um, super persuasive about liberalism's uh, chance to survive in the end. <laughs> mm. So anyway, think, uh, Moyne yeah. is a professor at Yale. Oh yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say I think that's where I found Moyne was through Corey Robin actually first. Yeah, I think I did too, probably. So Moyne's a professor at Yale, and he wrote this piece for um, an online magazine called Granta, which I'd never heard of until now. I'm not sure if you've ever read anything from them. Mm-mm. But the piece is called The Trouble with Old Men, and the basic – it's an interesting article, I think. And I don't, I don't know that we need to, like, um, sort of excavate and, you know, exposit the entire 
essay more than just use it as a launching pad to think about what gerontocracy is and why it's bad. If it's bad, I'm assuming probably most people do think that it's bad. <laughs> um, and what we can do about it seems like the interesting stuff to, um, to talk about. But for those who don't know, gerontocracy just means rule by old people, basically. Mm. Um, and Moyne's way of sort of tackling the issue is to compare the way that pre-modern and ancient societies dealt with old rulers who hold on to power past their prime and past their ability to actually exercise power effectively for the social unit uh, and compare that to the way that that, that we've um, dealt with these things, which is basically to not have any norms or standards around how to deal with um, older individuals who have entrenched their power in a political system. Hmm. Um, that got me to thinking, and, I, and probably why I wanted to discuss this in the first place with you was like, I've been thinking a lot as we've been like leading up to this election between Biden and Trump. Um, and you were even just mentioning the Jon Stewart video where um, he's pointing out um, the sort of, I, I haven't seen the video yet, but I'm guessing it's like the similarities between the candidates in terms of what seems to be ineptitude uh, in functioning as a, as the president of the United States and whatever role that, or the contents of the role is supposed to be there. Um Although I'm sure he also said that Trump is much worse uh, for all sorts of reasons. Um, and think about then what what actually is bad about gerontocracy? Because it seems like it is bad. There's something bad about it, right? But is it as as simple as like old people shouldn't rule? Is it as simple as like the ruler should be a better representation of like the median person in the society. Like there's an important representational feature that's gone wrong there. That seems false mm. to me, but some people might think mm. that, right? Um, or is there something that's like, the, if you have a gerontocracy, you have these sort of s symptoms that are happening at the level of representative office. Is that a symptom of something like a malaise underneath the surface? Um, and so it's not necessarily bad to have an older ruler, but if you have lots of older rulers and it doesn't really change and all the options are older people and many of them are no longer seem capable of functioning and yet they still attain office anyway, uh, what does that say about your society? Like, What's the underlying malaise or sickness that's causing those symptoms? Something like that seems more accurate to me, but then trying to figure out what that underlying malaise is, is not super easy. I don't know. Do you have any like initial thoughts about maybe even before you read the piece, like what you were thinking about gerontocracy and uh, even the specific state of, you know, Biden and Trump being either one of them ended up being president in uh, the end of the year? Yeah. I mean, so the first time that I really started taking seriously the kind of socio-political or socio-ethic issue of of old age was actually reading an essay by Stanley Hauerwas. And I think maybe you and I have oh, talked man. about this before. Yeah, but it was basically he was talking about how it is that in society we either just treat them as kind of like cute and it's like, oh, look how cute the old people are playing shuffleboard and croquet and oh, you know, you're, oh, you're so cute and silly, old, old person, you know, kind of thing. But what comes with that is, you know, kind of um, its own form of, of um, oppression, its own form of um, a type of mistreatment 
of how this person can actually contribute, right? Um, and then the other way is that they're a burden, right? Like they are a burden, like, oh my god, I got a fucking grandma, you know, like, and then, and then sociopolitically, it's, it's like, oh, these fucking people that are, are a, a drain on the system, you know, because they, you know, tax dollars have to get spent on fucking, you know, um, healthcare for them or something like that. Mm-hmm. And he was basically talking about, you know, how this really devalues individuals who have wisdom that have has been stored up for years and that there ought to be a way in which there's a place for the elderly. He's talking about it within the spiritual community, of course, right? But there there needs to be a central place for the elderly within our midst to contribute in a way that is really substantial. And that was like, God, I read that, I mean, a long time ago now, but that was like really in my early formative years kind of coming out of evangelicalism. And starting to think about alternative communities, and that's when I was was really interested in living in intentional communities and living uh, kind of alternative to the way that maybe consumer capitalist culture had kind of created as the only alternative. And I started thinking, well, what would it be like if you had a community where there was mutual participation across the age brackets, you know? And I got really interested, like there was this, I remember there was this really cool, there's this it's like a preschool that is attached to a retirement home where like the kids get to play with the elderly and the el- and it's great for the people who are in these retirement homes who are oftentimes alienated and isolated by society and they're just like stuck in these homes because they're burdens mm-hmm. um and it's this great way to kind of like close this generational gap where one you're giving them a purpose and and joy and 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 you know kind of a reason for living in an otherwise kind of uh, in a situation that otherwise kind of just discards them and, and makes them as secondary or even tertiary, and then you have like this younger generation of people who really are then surrounded by the elderly as a normal thing rather than just kind of seeing oh well they are past the prime of being able to contribute to anything, and you kind of create these kind of habitual formations of, of social connection between these two otherwise disparate age age groups, and I think and then that made me start to think about okay so what is it that that tends towards the creation of the elderly as being either a burden or just kind of like, you know, we look at them with like paternalistic glasses. And it's like, well, it's because we live in a world where speed and production and the new and the perpetual motion machine is what matters. And if you aren't old enough to continue to contribute to those new things, then you get paced out. And so then to me, I think that there's a a kind of um, political economic critique that can be made against the mistreatment of the elderly or against how it is that the position of the elderly is constituted within that system. And so that's Mm -hmm. how it kind of started for me. Um, But then I also kind of am like critical of this idea that's like, well, then what we need to do is we need to look at pre-modern culture and realize that actually, and this is kind of like this sort of noble savage idea that I think also runs into its own issues, right? Which I think Samuel Moyne's essay actually avoids in a lot of ways. But this is the one that you see a lot of times where it's like, well, what we need then is we need to recognize that actually it was the elderly who were the storytellers in the village and they're the ones who actually have all the knowledge and we need to have them as like a kind of like central position within society to to retain the memory of society and pass it on. And the, and the reason that I find that to be potentially problematic is that it tips into reactionary territory, which is that it's like, well, we need to just preserve the old paths, right? Mm-hmm. So... I think there's got to be a way that moves through those, learns the lessons, the valuable lessons from them, but then also kind of like moves beyond those into something different for how it is that we could construct a society and how it is that we could view 
the process of aging in a really sort of robust sense that would allow us to appreciate and find the contributions for people throughout the phases of their lives. And, um, and I think that's where Moyne's essay ends, which is really interesting, while also going through this idea that's kind of like, well, in the ancient world, it seems that 60 was the cutoff age, and you got, you got forced into retirement <laughs> that is thrown off a cliff. Um, and, and I think there's something funny about that. But I think, again, there's a, there's, a, there's a valuable lesson that we can learn in that as well. But all that to say that I think what I really would want to do is I'd want to not fall into the, the fetishizing of the youth, which I think you oftentimes get not only in consumer capitalist culture, but you also find it in the revolutionary culture as well, right? Like that the youth are the ones who have the ideas and the, 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 the kind of the, the, the vigor to actually go out and do stuff. We have to listen primarily to them. I don't want to kind of like fall into that mode. Um, and then also the idea that... Um, that like, well, then we ought to just sort of just romanticize and, and give the elderly like the, the pure status of the place, uh, the central place in society. So I kind of like want to work through all of those things um, and find a different way of, of thinking about it. Yeah, I think it's super important to bring up um, how the elderly are treated outside of positions of political power, right? Because that, I think, gives a lie to a lot of the sort of justifications for the current gerontocracy that that we see in, in America right now, right? So like, I think you're totally right that capitalism means that individuals who are no longer able to function in a way as to optimize, uh, you know, creation or economic growth or whatever, um, you know, babies at least will do that in the future. Older people don't do it and will not do it in the future. So they're the least able to occupy that that role, right? Um, and to optimize economic growth. So they're kind of shuffled off to the side. And that happens even in like smaller scale social circles too, where older people are kind of sometimes seen as a burden. They don't contribute anything as far as keeping the family afloat. Um, and maybe they're sick and maybe they um, are mentally not quite there anymore. So, you know, relationships with them are purely matters of duty rather than um, like sources of joy or anything, right? In some cases. And it's just, you know, it's just bad vibes for everyone all around, right? And so they get kind of shuffled off mm. into retirement homes or isolated until they, like, you know, in the worst case, like, die of die from social isolation. Um, mm. And that's just obviously terrible. And it and it and it's a loss, not just obviously for the people who suffer from it, but it's a loss at the social level, too, because... Well, also, also the best case actually, scenario, the best case scenario for the retiree is that it's like, well, then you just become a pure consumer for the rest of your life, just spending that money that you've saved up just go on cruises and drink cocktails and go play shuffleboard and join the little club where you're paying your money into the service sector you know or you, you know you're buying consumer products so then it's like your role has been completed you're no longer a productive member now you just consume until you die that's like the best case scenario within that other kind of retiree framework and no surprise then that many individuals who have that best case scenario end up being depressed because they're not engaging yeah. in activities they find to be meaningful anymore since they're purely consuming and that's not satisfying as a life, right? right. Um, and so you have that phenomenon at the social level and then you have, so it's sort of, you know, um, not taking advantage of the, at the social level of the kinds of inputs that elderly people can have that are good uh, for society and for, you know, individual families and, and whatnot. Um, and at the same time, you have a political class which is almost entirely made up, or at least disproportionately made up, of older, very wealthy people who have entrenched power, right? And so you might mm. be like, well, the reason we have a gerontocracy isn't for any, 
you know, underlying sickness or malaise, it's because we're respecting the people with political wisdom and political experience. It's like, fuck, no, you're not. Because look at our culture. We don't celebrate that in any other way. Mm. <laughs> so you're telling me our, our political culture is healthier than the rest of our culture? Everyone <laughs> knows it's the opposite, right? Yeah. <laughs> of, of all the parts of our culture that are the most sick, it's clearly the political culture that's the most sick, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So like, nobody doubts that. So it's like, it's clearly not the case that we have a gerontocracy for any good reasons, right? It's only mm. going to be for bad reasons. Um, and it seems like you reflect on it for even two seconds, it's fairly obvious. The reason why Biden and Trump are um, the candidates for the presidency aren't because anybody really thinks that they're the wisest individuals involved. I think mm. even people who um, who sort of defend uh, Biden as a matter of course would probably admit in their most honest moments they don't think he's the the best person. Oh, you can job. tell they're full of shit. There's this little in that John Stewart clip. There's this little montage that he puts together of these people that are like Biden is sharp and he's smart and da 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 da. And he's still. You can tell that it's one fucking talking points that they've been spe- <laughs> they've been fed by a spin doctor. But also, their performance is so disingenuous, especially oh, yeah. Kamala Harris, especially her. Like. You're like, even Sean looked at me, she's like, wow, her performance is really bad. Like, at least I believed that the other people believed what they were saying. Like, she clearly doesn't even believe what she's saying, you know? It's actually like her one virtue is that she's a terrible liar. Terrible. <laughs> right? <laughs> so it's like, maybe maybe there is a soul in there if you're so bad at lying. Yeah. Um, Fucking you know, hell. Maybe, maybe you do it so much, you still don't get any better at it. I don't know. Usually you do get better at things when you do them more often. Mm. Um, but yeah, so... Again, probably no, nobody, I think, on Trump's side really thinks he's like a wise person or something like that. They just think he's going to get them what they want, right? Yeah. And the same goes for Biden. They can, he mm. can, they think at least that he can get them what they want, which is not anything to do with a better society. It's to beat Trump. That's the only goal that they have. And they honestly think, whether right or wrong, that Biden's the only person who can do it. In fact, that was the oh, reason God. I think why Obama intervened in the um, primary process. Um, in the in Biden's first election, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Bernie had just won uh, Nevada, right? Fairly handily, he had won I think two or three of the first few primary slash caucuses, and seemed like he was on his way to being the candidate. We I think we even did a podcast where we we're talking about is this really happening? Because no yeah. one's ever had this big of a lead in the first few primaries slash caucuses, and then not won the candidacy, right? So it seems like he's going to win. Obama made the call. Everyone else dropped out and supported Biden, and then it was over, right? Yeah, that's right. Buttigieg um, dropped out. Yeah, they all, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the reason for that was the belief, whether right or wrong, that if Bernie's the candidate, he won't beat Trump because he's too far left. And Biden's the only person who can win enough votes from the center to beat Trump. And the only goal is to defeat Trump, right? And the same is going to be true here in 2024, that the only goal is to beat Trump. Um, and so that seems to be... Uh, what individuals are motivated by in their support of the various candidates. Nothing to do with, you know, elderly people have this, you know, incredible wisdom, and that's why they should be in political office. So I think even then we can see that, you know, the gerontocracy is not coming. And even even self-reflectively, people are not even telling this to themselves, I feel like. Everyone kind of has this somewhat more cynical view, like this is the best we can get kind of a thing. Um, so yeah, it's, I think it's really good to point out that tension between the way elders are treated 
outside of political culture and regular everyday, you know, quotidian life compared to um, the, the kinds of elders who are running our political process, right? That it, it gives a lie to this idea that there's anything justified about it. Hmm. Yeah, so to kind so, of like return turn back to something well, like we talked about. Oh, are, are you still going? Did it cut out? I just want to say really quick, um, mm. there was this line that Moyne quotes from a, like a social anthropologist or somebody, I can't remember exactly who, and he says, respect for old age has resulted from social discipline as a kind of um, recapitulation of pre-modern society's um, sort of view of their various gerontocracies, which speaks to a kind of like, it's not be- it's not this like, what do you call it, like the noble savage idea where, you know, mm. in ancient and pre-modern societies, people just respected their elders. And so that's how they ended up in, in positions of political leadership. No, it's a kind of social discipline. Like people have entrenched power as they get older, they gain more of that power. They don't want to give it up. And then they discipline the youthful vigor um, away from its role of contesting those positions of entrenched power and into accepting it through the guise of, we have the wisdom that you lack from your lack of experience. Right. So yeah, I think you're you're right to point out that Moyne uh, is trying to not he's trying to avoid that sort of naive idea that pre-modern societies had this sort of unified monolithic view about older people always having wisdom. Yeah. Do do you think there's something with his emphasis on the idea that hey, sixty was kind of it seems like that was the the um, universal cutoff age for um, for you're no longer a productive member of society. It's time for you to go on to the afterlife um, or, or to no longer, you know, kind of be in control. Do you think there's also something in that about like a kind of jubilee logic that like the el- – like debt is related to memory in so many ways, right? And mm-hmm. you can inscribe down that debt through writing and through like accounting and bookkeeping. But before that or in societies where they don't do it that way – who is it that holds on to the memory and that, that passes that on to the next generation? Well, it's the elderly. And even though the there's um, a system that still has preservation of tradition and culture that would still have some sense in which the debts are preserved, do you think there's also a sense in which maybe it's a way to kind of keep a freshness? You know, where it's like, Okay, you can no longer overexert or like overdetermine your influence, your your kind of like status as as creditor in a way. And so, do you think there's something maybe about that as well of like not letting debt memory extend in perpetuity for too long, but it's a way to kind of keep it semi fresh. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, you think about why people vote the way they vote, especially for the presidency, right? And there's like 20% of people on both sides who vote based upon policy. Like they agree with a certain set of policies. And then the, the rest yeah. of the 60% middle, they, they vote based on vibes, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting that like this idea of like having a jubilee, like a conceptual or experiential or whatever cultural, social jubilee, like reset the system, right? Mm. There's a certain kind of attractiveness to that. And that seems to be why people were very attracted to Obama, even if they weren't really politically liberal, right? Mm. Lots of people voted for Obama and then Trump. (laughs) And that seems impossible if you know anything about political ideology. But when you remember vibes, and vibes are very important, um, Mm. 
it makes a little bit more sense, right? This kind of like we're gonna we're gonna elect somebody who's barely a politician. They've been a junior senator for like two two or four years or whatever, right? Is black, so we have this sort of reset at that level too, um, and has all this language about hope and change and things being different. And we've just had George Bush and um, never-ending wars and all these things. And then the financial crash, we need to reset, right? And there's a kind of mm. inverted version of that in Trump too, which is political outsider, not part of the political class, ostensibly at least. And um, he'll reset the system, he'll shake it up, he'll remove the deep state and whatever, right? What was the drain the swamp? That was the idea, right? The also has language of a reset. Of a reset. And then Biden mm. being the ultimate, whoops, we can't be Gotta doing get it back. Crazy, yeah. crazy destabilizing stuff. Give me the norm. Give me the usual, right? Give me safety. This is a kind of like push and pull between the attractiveness of the reset and the attractiveness of continuity, even though it's continuity with a subpar um, prognosis. It, at the very least, subpar is predictable, right? As opposed to the kind of range of possible outcomes that come with a reset. So yeah, there does seem to be this kind of like in the vibes-based approach, um, this desire for a jubilee countered and balanced by a desire for predictable shittiness, if, as long as it's predictable. Mm. So do you think that people, they kind of latch onto the vibe of the reset in the figure of POTUS, but then when you look at Congress, you've got gerontocracy, you've got the same old, you've got Schumer who's been there for a thousand years, and Pelosi who's been there for a thousand years, and McConnell who's been there for a thousand, fucking weekend at Bernie's and Bernie, Bernieing it out there, you know. Um, so you've got, I mean, shoot, even Bernie Sanders, right? Um, who's in his eighties, yeah. right? Um, or late, late, late seventies. Um, but so you, there's like, there's something important. It seems like about wielding that veneer of the reset, while at the same time being like, yeah, but we know for sure that things aren't truly going to be disrupted. Like, don't worry. Like, we can play, we can cosplay as rebels, but actually things are ultimately going to stay the same. Well, that's the thing, right, is if you know this kind of phenomenon is happening, you can hack it, which both Obama and Trump did in different ways, right? Obama hacked it by actually being a, a candidate, like a policy-based candidate for continuity, while hacking the idea of the reset. And then lots of people get disillusioned with that because they were voting based upon the rhetoric and not based upon the actual policy that was offered. Um, mm. And then Trump, of course, you know, has all this rhetoric about drain the swamp and unearth the deep state and build the wall. And he has this thing right now about building internment camps for migrants and stuff, which is scary as shit, right? Um, and I don't want to say like he's, he's just bluffing or whatever. I mean, I don't know the answer to that. Um, but it is kind of a hacking of this reset attitude, right? We're going to upset everything and do it completely differently than it's been before, which mm -hmm. then prompts the, oh, well, this is why you got to vote for Biden because look at what the alternative is, right? We need continuity. We need stability. Look at the economic performance. It's so good. Um, it's so stable. Um, so yeah, that mm -hmm. does seem to be the kind of push and pull that's happening right now. What I'm curious about though is like, okay, if, if the analysis is like there are these entrenched um, like units of power that have built up over decades and they sort of manifest in the form of like Biden and Pelosi and McConnell and all these individuals who've been in, in, in Congress um, for, you know, uh, like a half century or whatever. What's going on with Gen X? Because like 
there are important American politicians that are millennials, right? That have a certain cachet with um, the broader populace, right? They might not have actual much power like in Congress or or in the various states or whatever, but they have um, cachet with people. Like they, they attract people. And obviously you have um, the most powerful politicians in the country are almost universally octogenarians, right? Um, mm. Like where the hell is Gen X? Because if, if all that mattered, like especially to Democrats, was this continuity, stability, predictability, even if it's kind of shitty, at least it's you know, predictable and that satisfies the business crowd because they just want you know to get their steady returns or whatever um, on the market. Like, why not Gretchen Whitmer, the um, governor of Michigan, or Sherrod Brown, the senator from Ohio? Individuals who have a fairly big um, national profile. Uh, and of course, in that same Gen X sphere, you have... Uh, um, Harris too, right? Who probably was in the same place as Whitmer and Brown before she became vice mm. president. Why do all these people, I'm not advocating for any of these people necessarily, right? But like all these people seem to have no national profile. Like they're not being elevated to being on the next step. And I guess maybe Harris was, but then they realized, oh shit, like when she talks, it sounds like like a ventriloquist dummy is talking. So this mm. is not good. <laughs> Um, but it's just, it's just a curious fact of American politics that there are basically no, um, very few at least, important Gen X politicians. Like, is, is Cruz the only one who has a really big national profile? So Gen X is up to what age? 55? 60? So like 45 to 60, yeah, we'll see. I guess probably 65, but yeah, there-ish. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's kind of, they're kind of the outliers, but aren't the squad, aren't they in their 40s? They're millennials. Are they? All of them? Pretty sure. Or at least, you know, they identify with millennial culture. Like, they're all all online and stuff like that. Okay. And then you've got Cruz, but uh, what about Buttigieg? Is he, is he I mean, a millennial? he's a millennial who cosplays as a as a Gen Xer, right? <laughs> <laughs> he's functionally a Gen Xer. What about Newsom? What about Newsom? Where does he stand in this? He's he's an yeah, Xer. Yeah, I mean, he's a he's a Gen Xer, and you would think nobody likes him. Look at the dude. He he looks like a Hollywood actor, right? Um, and has some charisma. He actually like can speak a little bit. He's eloquent. Um, I mean, he's like. He comes across a little bit like a coke dealer. <laughs> like American he's a little slick. Yeah, he's a little slick. Yeah. Um, but you, you would think in any other universe, he'd be a shoo-in to be the next leader of the Democratic Party. Um, and yet, it's almost like taken for granted that that, that can't happen. because, And it, it's weird. That's the case. Well, it can't happen because he and his friends went out to dinner during COVID or some shit like that. Remember? That was like... That's like the thing that everybody always talks about when they're like, oh, but Newsom could step in for Biden. He's going to be the one. And he did that debate, too, a few months back. Or was it a month back or whatever it was? And people were kind of like, nah. Like, it just kind of blew over. It wasn't it, – it didn't gain any momentum. There weren't people afterwards that were seriously like, yep, he's he's the one that's got to take the baton now. Okay, we can put our support behind him. It felt like it was kind of – they were testing the waters. The Democratic Party was were testing the waters to see. But – yeah, it is interesting. I don't know. Yeah, it does seem like there's something politically about, I mean, comparing Buttigieg with like Harris seems appropriate, right? They were both 
running for president and then Obama made the call and they both sort of um, folded and supported Biden, right? There's a kind of like Buttigieg is a millennial, but he but he functions as a as a Gen Xer and kind of talks like them, um, and has the sort of lack of charisma and, and no personality that many Gen X politicians <laughs> in the states have, right? Very much unlike the millennials who clearly showcase their personality on their sleeve, right? And their you know like moral and ethical commitments as well as well. They don't have this like neutral. I'm a politician. I can't I can't speak a whole lot about my own personal like moral vision for society or whatever that's that's you know crazy soviet talk or something mm. um the the gen xers the, the, the politically powerful ones all just kind of genuflect or supplicants to boomers sort mm. of symbolized in um you know bowing the knee to biden once they got the call from obama right um so they it's like they kind of know well the, the boomers are just going to have power until they're dead so we just need to kind of be their like handmaidens or something and not try and like stake out our own path and not <laughs> quite follow the rules and be a bit of a, a candidate who comes from outside the political sphere. Like it seems like there's no Gen Xers who want to actually do that. It's like um, it's like in the university system. We just know that the tenured professors are going to hold their position until <laughs> they die. And so, so junior, uh, junior professors don't rock the boat. junior professors they don't rock the boat and all of the adjunct faculty and precariat uh, are just waiting for the boomers to die make secret plans to assassinate them that they never actually actual like actual (laughs) (laughs) that's funny yeah there's it's it's the exact same like parallel um situation happening probably not just in academia but in all sorts of uh positions where you have like entrenched power that can build up over decades it's funny how that how that same kind of thing can happen. Hmm. I guess everybody yeah. who had a personality and who was a Gen X, like who's 55 and a politician, like they're no longer a politician anymore, I guess. No, they've gone into the now... private sector. They're like tech leaders and <laughs> consultants and they're fucking, you know, they're on boards for Blackwater or whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Very much seems that way. Huh. Yeah. It's interesting to kind of, to kind of whip it back around to what we were talking about during the during the intro um it i think sartre's conception of seriality and institutionalization like helps me at least kind of have a conceptual apparatus for understanding this and we've talked a bit about it but seriality is essentially his concept for alienation which is a process of dehumanization and he even refers to the fully serialized subject as an inhuman right and there's this there's this theory from uh, a Sartre scholar named Robert Bernasconi who argues that Sartre never completes the Critique of Dialectical Reason project, volume two, because he kind of realized that the Western Marxist or the Western revolutionary approach needed to be supplemented by the voice of the Global South. So Bernasconi's claim is that really it's like Fanon's project in, in The Wretched of the Earth, which Sartre writes the, the preface for, right, that kind of becomes the... The volume two of the Critique of Dialectical Reason project, um, which is, I think, an interesting thing because one of the central concerns with Fanon is that the colonized is not human, right? They're completely viewed as abject and they're completely damned, as we were talking about before we started recording, that the, the actual word for wretched in the French in which Fanon is writing is actually damned, the damned of the earth. 
not the wretched of the earth. So there's something about them being like spiritually dead from the perspective of the the system, right? That they are completely outside and beyond and you know, not not savable, so to speak. So Fanon talks about how that unconscious rage that comes from that is is ultimately a fight against that radical injustice in the struggle for the creation of something that might be a new form of humanism. It's the idea that it's like, oh, so the conception that you have of the human that dehumanizes us is not something that we can ever be included into because that construction of that concept of the human is constituted insofar as it alienates the colonized. Therefore, we need to kind of come up with a post-humanist humanism, something that is a completely different conception of what it means to even be human, and that's what we're struggling for. That's what we're fighting for. Um, and I think there's something interesting that we can take about this as we can look at the political system, and, and uh, it's a different idea, but kind of bringing it back now to Sartre where maybe in the earlier stages of his of his elaboration of the institution and how the, the tendency towards seriality and institutionalization dehumanizes is one of the things that it does is it basically takes component parts and it turns them into inessential in the service of the structure or the institution or the serial process, which is essential. So I think we could look at that and we could say then, okay, so the position of the political uh, masters that, that's, that's, that's like the elderly, that they're also just component parts that are inessential in the service of the structure, the institution. And I think that there's a real sort of like dehumanization in that. Um, so they're acting from a real like serialized form of non-subjectivity. I was going to say subjectivity, but there's like a, it's like a degraded status of subjectivity. And, um, and I think that there's a sense in which that it's like they, like it's a real it's a real poor conception of what it means to age, right? Like if that's all we can look forward to, what we've already talked about, you're either a consumer or you're a burden on the system or you're like just this cute little silly thing because you're old and your brain doesn't work right, quote unquote right, because it doesn't function in a, a way that productive society deems that cognitive function has to function. So you're just whatever. Or like you just get propped up as some sort of um, figurehead to further the political machinations of a system of power. Like if those are the options for aging, well, that's actually like a really inhuman conception. That's like a really unethical conception of what life is, I think. Yeah, I mean, speaking of alienation, like you know who's probably really alienated? Joe Biden. Dude did mm. not want to be president. <laughs> <laughs> right? He purposely didn't run um, <laughs> after uh, he left the vice presidency after, you know, Obama's second term was done because he didn't want to be president. He only ran in 2020 because he thought only really he could beat Trump. And that was more important than what he wanted to do with the end of his life. Right? So it's like he's even, in a sense, serialized into this system yeah. in believing yeah, yeah. that even though I don't want to be president and probably wouldn't do a great job, I guess I got to do my duty and stop the worst from happening, right? And I, I would hope that he would realize right now he does not want to have a second term into his going into his late 80s near the end of it, right? Um, and that kind of speaks to the fact that, yeah, it's, it's not that there's these several or even dozens of individuals who have entrenched power 
and they're consciously using it to discipline everyone else to get in, in line. That does happen in certain um, in certain situations and like you know opportunistically or whatever. But generally speaking, it's a kind of problem of the social system at large, right? The only individuals who have the entrenched power can end up um, in this in this role where they're where they're occupying the um, the major political offices, right? And that's that speaks to this idea that the norms and standards that a, that a functioning society would have for ushering people out of power when they're abusing it or no longer able to wield it effectively don't exist. That's mm-hmm. why there are no Gen X politicians who are prepared and ready to take the mantle, even if they would be not very good or even if they would be just more continuity and more of the same, right? We don't have those because we've sort of lost all these norms and standards for um, that that help function to for people to choose their next leaders, right? Not even like in a, like in a just or a good uh, or like utopian way, but just in like a normal way. We don't have that's why there's all this like vacillating between: do we want mm. um, reset? Do we want continuity? Back and mm. forth because there's just there's this chaos because the underlying norms and standards don't exist anymore. We're sort of like reaching, grasping in the dark um, for whatever the next thing is. That's why I think a lot of the political culture in the U.S. is so chaotic right now is because the, these these norms and standards don't exist anymore. Like, not that you should take anyone when they turn sixty years old and push them off a cliff, right? <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> but you know, the very small kernel of you know goodness or truth or whatever in that is that there's at least a system that that people have to sort of respect that says um, you need to do this. And if you don't, you'll be shamed and embarrassed into it, right? And if you want to keep your dignity, then you will just do it yourself, right? The idea mm. of there being even being a dignity to, like, especially the presidency anymore has, you know, completely gone out the window. And a lot of times that functions in a really cynical way. So I don't want to, like, celebrate the idea that we need to bring dignity back to the office or whatever. Um, but there is, I think, at the at the much deeper level, something lost and not having these levers for, like, ushering people out of political culture when they're clearly a disease on it, right? So, you know, I don't think shame is usually a good tool um, in like the moral sphere in everyday life. It's often um, wielded in ways that are very unjust. But the one area where it is good and needs to be brought back is at the political level. <laughs> People mm. need to be shamed into yeah. um, sort of out of office or to not do things that are that are awful or terrible. Um, and the fact that that's gone completely now is not a good thing, I don't think. Well, it's a real asocial phenomenon because shame has something to do with your relation to somebody else. And so if you are unshameable, mm-hmm. then essentially you are not actually you, – you're that there's a state of exception there, right? You're not responsive to, to, to any social norms at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Which doesn't say Which that mean, the social norms are necessarily just or good. But exactly. being completely, completely able to like um, ignore them is not good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that it's like built into the role. That it's like you will be unshameable as soon as you step into this subject position. Yeah, that's bad. And, you know, that's part of, I think, why like Newsom was able to avoid the backlash that would come from the COVID parties, right? Just wait it out. Like Trump proved it. Just <laughs> yeah. wait it out. You don't have to quit. You don't have to apologize. 
Why would you do that? Just don't be shameable. Mm. It's not good that that's effective. Mm. And you know, it, it speaks yeah. to the fact that like j- that by itself is not going to like solve our problems. Bringing back, you know, shame, quitting when you do when you commit a so- <laughs> yeah. like a social faux pas or whatever, right? That's not going to do it. But that's like one piece of a larger system where like youthful people engage in protest and they challenge the levers of power sometimes in ways that are not even ultimately very effective or even good and can sometimes even um be sort of like i don't know cognitively immature or something like that um but all that stuff is important like grist for the mill of having like a democratic power sharing um sort of system right Mm. like when when macron pulls some shit in france cars get burned right mm. and say what you will about, about like Fran- french democratic culture or whatever but um macron responds to that stuff <laughs> right mm. they're going to cut pensions cars get burned he you know reverses policy or whatever um there's something important about having that as like a lever of of power right and what gerontocracy does is it disciplines that out of existence Right, it demands fealty and obedience from the youth in exchange for some crumbs or whatever, um, and then that sort of that lever of of youthful protest providing that grist for the mill no longer works. It's disciplined out of existence. It's disciplined out of um, being effective. It's you know called those sorts of names: um, irresponsible, uh, utopian, idealistic, whatever, purely ideological. Um, to the point where mm. it's no longer able to effectively do that anymore, and that's why you end up having, you know, gerontocracy and these entrenched senses of uh, like levers of power no longer being able to be challenged. Hmm, it's really interesting, and I, I know that that there are like older rulers around the world, but I also wonder. It seems possible, at least for a lot of places, to have prime ministers or presidents that can be a little bit younger. Not in all places, but in a lot of different places, even like you know other sort of powerful nations like France or Germany, right? Um, but then it makes me wonder, is there something unique about the U.S. right now that it's experiencing a sort of resistance to the possibility of youth or even like the perception of younger a younger person leading because it has something to do with like the felt sense of the crumbling empire. And so we need to try to like, yeah, things need to, we still need to have that veneer like we talked about before of reset, but we like the world is really scary right now. And there's like a multipolar alignment and, you know, we need to make sure that we don't rock the boat too much kind of, even if it's like this unconscious felt sense among the populace as well. And then of course it's fed through the narrative and media and whatnot that, that intensifies this, this felt sense of, uncertainty or precarity and so that intensifies the need to like hold on to the old paths a little bit in whatever ways it can yeah it's hard to say like what the what 2028 is going to bring right because i mean i'm assuming it can't be biden or trump again (laughs) (laughs) Uh, although who knows who knows things can happen um but it seems like someone from gen x is going to have to going to rise up um at that point but well millennials by then yeah. will be in their mid 40s so i don't know yeah it, it, it's hard to think like it seems like you need to run for president like since obama it's been 
um, people like the major candidates have been uh, Biden and Clinton um, and Trump uh, and Romney. Um, and so it's all individuals who have this sort of national profile beforehand. Right. Mm. It's hard to see anybody who has a national profile at all being that person in the future. But yeah, I think you're right that like the, the underlying important thing isn't like who's going to run or whatever, uh, like, you know, horse trading politics, but this this underlying sense of of vacillating between um, wanting chaos, wanting reset and wanting normalcy, wanting continuity, even in, even with shitty continuity. And that hmm. sort of there's something cultural about America that's not able to decide between those yeah. two things. Um, and that speaks to like a tension within the culture about like, in order to have normal capitalism, you have to have predictability, right? And that's how you get yeah. your market returns that are regular. And well, that's also, what the like, equilibrium the is. There's got to be a something that that is like the standpoint of equilibrium that guarantees that the empire will persist. That guarantees that you know mm-hmm. that things will be okay. That we can show up and the then, market will continue. But then also realizing, maybe even unconsciously, that that can't continue. Things are not mm. the same anymore. So something drastic has to change, but wanting to like push it off as long as possible. Yeah, interesting. So, uh, what do you think about yeah. about Moyne's last paragraph? So he says he's got a bit of a proposal at the end, but it's kind of abstract. He says uh, there's a more radical approach. He means we can take to like the problem of gerontocracy to root out the foundations of gerontocracy tooth and nail. Society can be organized to equip children for their future, to encourage youth to make their mark to build social support for men and women in their prime. After that, there would be caretaking and memory, playing playing for time in the face of inexorable decline, necessary death, and ultimate oblivion. What do you think about this idea of, like, rooting out the foundations of gerontocracy tooth and nail? Which I think he means at the social, like the bottom social level, in ways that would have ramifications for the political level. So he seems to have a assumption like a like a sociological assumption about um uh cultural levers being pulled that change things at the political cultural level being downstream from that Mm. that kind of jives a little bit with what you were talking about earlier about finding this like happy medium between or synthesis between um celebrating the wisdom that elderly the older people sometimes do have right from their greater experience and reflection and things like that, but also not using that as like a cynical ploy for um, older people to gain entrenched power and hold on to it forever or to, until they die, at least. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's it's advocating for an entire restructure of the social model towards one where contribution and participation takes place throughout your life in a real robust sense. So it's not just about production, consumption. It's not just about like, you know, units of power that are being wielded by institutional uh, by institutional mechanisms, but that there's like this conscious recognition that your role in society will change and shift in what it contributes and how it participates from youth to middle age and then into the twilight years 
And to me, it's it, I love I love these kinds of speculative proposals. I do. So then, what I wonder is, I'm I'm sure that somebody like Moyne, who isn't simply a philosopher, is going to want to then think about okay, so like, what are the nuts and bolts that can actually start to rebuild something like this? Like, how does it actually happen? Does it happen through making sure that we invest in education and youth and the um, the conscious like empowerment of the younger generations so that they can see themselves actually reflected in the socio-political order so that they can feel like they actually are participating and contributing rather than just looking at it cynically like young people do now like well the system will never love me back kind of thing so how does that happen how do we shift that and then so you get into the prime years of your life where you're, okay, all the stuff that you've learned from youth, you're invested in it, and now you're continuing that investment and you're reaping some of the benefits of that as as, uh, as now you've gathered all your strength. And then as you kind of go over the hump and you're on like the downward slope now, somehow you now, you can slow down, you can look back on your life and you can appreciate because you've lived a full, robust life. You can, And maybe that's part of it is maybe so much of when we have a, a world now where it's like you work, 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 save till retirement, and then you can enjoy your life, there's this real like means end way of of thinking about life that that really prevents the possibility for the pre-retirees to actually have a sense of enjoyment, at least in this model, until it's like, well, you will enjoy it later. So you enjoy the fruits of your labor later, but it's only insofar as you now become a consumer or you just become someone who can just like rest finally, right? But if you change that and you're like, well, no, you've been contributing this whole time, you've been fully participating this whole time, you know, then by the time you get to the twilight years, there isn't this like panic need to like do the things that you held off from doing for your entire life before, right? There's, it's like, it's not that it's like, oh my God, now I need to travel to all the places and now I need to do the things that mattered and now I can actually follow and pursue my dreams and now I can do the hobbies, but you've already been able to live a full life prior to that. Like that is a total transformation of the social order, but I think that can only take place with some sort of like wholesale replacement of a social and political ethic entirely for, uh, that then translates into the actual technologies of society. Yeah. I mean, the, the question there is like, I totally agree with all that. What's the leading phenomenon? What's the trailing phenomenon? I mean, you know how you, how you prevent older people with entrenched power from using that entrenched power to hold onto it until they die. You don't let people get entrenched power, <laughs> right? Hmm. So like, don't let people have power in the various um, like locations they have it, whether it's the workplace or local politics, state politics, maybe even like families and stuff like that. Like you don't let individuals have that kind of power over others, which they can use to gain more of it, right? Like you change at the political level and that I don't think causes all the good social stuff you were talking about, but it opens up space for it. Right, well, now you're for it. now you're talking crazy talk because now you're talking about like tyranny stopping the aristocracy, essentially. Right now you're saying there needs to be some sort of top-down mechanism that prevents the the elites from continuing elitist control over things. Which I'm I'm saying this kind of like tongue in cheek, right? Like 
But yeah, I mean, I don't need I don't the system need to be top down. <laughs> oh, that you don't. Mm. But like, how do you institute? that in the first place like you basically would have to call upon the people who institute the rules to institute their own self-demise which they're literally built a system and are continuing a system to further their power right yeah they die though so that's why maybe you would need like a strong arm <laughs> sovereign to come in and be like no fuck it we're mandatory retirement age uh, you don't get lifelong um jobs when you're on the supreme court and and then like you would have to like kind of like chop things off a little bit I mean, the problem with giving uh, like a, a single sovereign the ability to do all those things is that you've just given them the entrenched power you were trying to do away with. It doesn't <laughs> typically end up very well, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the, the important point, I think, is that, look, can you have like a democratic majority, democratic stance, multi majority who rises up and takes that power, you know, non sort of tyrannically from um, the minority with the entrenched power? Sure. That doesn't really happen overnight, right? The lucky thing we have in our favor is that old people are going to die sooner on average. And so it's one of those things where it's like they're going to lose some of that power. The question is, does that simply get replicated in the next generation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or does that provide an opportunity when you know certain individuals do pass away from – um, instituting levers to make sure that it doesn't happen again. And it's probably not going to be like an overnight kind of a thing, right? It's going to be the no. thing that happens over, you know, years and years. But if everyone's sort of like reflecting on this fact and thinking about like, what is my duty um, as both citizen and politician for various people? Oh, if they think that, you know, the important thing is to not replicate this current um, system that's vacillating between chaos and normalcy or whatever, um, but sees a way out of that, and that institutes um, the things you need to to help that come along. You know, that's a bit abstract and whatnot, but it's it is doable. Like we got this way. Um, I mean, there's a certain sense in which America has always been kind of a gerontocracy in a way. But you know, even the American Revolution was led by like 30 year olds, hmm. right? So um, for all its warts, obviously, uh, and their warts, um, it doesn't have to be this way. It got this way because of decisions that were made. It can be reversed. Probably mm. takes a few people dying, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm going to think a lot. I think it's really interesting. I think my kind of like biggest takeaway from this is that that kind of idea of that, that, that tension between the desire, the felt need for reset, but also the like unwillingness or the inability or the similar kind of like parallel desire for the maintenance of order and stability. Like there's something really interesting in that. I think that relates to everything we've been talking about that I still want to, I still want to think through. Cause then it, it makes me wonder is all of this like claims towards draining the swamp and stuff like that. Is it just like pageantry and that even the people themselves who play into it they that there's a sense in which it's performance that it's theater you know yeah hmm. i don't know yeah well interesting stuff um i'll put a link down to the article in the show notes um it might be behind a paywall but there are ways to get around paywalls or you can subscribe to granta 
but um, yeah, we'll put a link down below so you can check out the article by Moin. Um, probably also give Moin a follow on on the socials. Good shit coming out constantly, and I'm sure at some point we'll talk more because we'll probably talk about the book. I would imagine at some point, or I'm sure some other article will come up at some point because you'll you'll be champing at the bit to chat about it a bit. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be fun. Sick. All right. So before we get out of here, we got to do for in many ways the best part of the podcast leaving you off on a good note because sometimes our hmm. shitty minutes in our main segments are a little bit depressing right <laughs> we got to talk about the sticky leaves that's the part of the podcast where one of us talks about whatever it is that's providing us meaning in a potentially but hopefully not meaningless universe so austin what's doing it for you lately have you been watching the tv show mr and mrs smith just started it how many episodes are you in I think two. Yeah, two. Okay. What do you think so far? Love it. I can't believe yeah. there were some somewhat middling reviews of it. I think it's so good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, me too. I the the reviews that I read that were critical were basically like I was wrong is what they were saying. They were like I was critical at first after the first episode and now I get what they were doing. I've watched it. And it's great. <laughs> and I think that that's oh, like, wow. yeah. Um, and I've seen that a couple of times where people were like, hey, give it a chance. Like, it's going to take a minute, but get through it. And um, I'm, I'm loving it. I'm absolutely loving it. I think it's, it's absolutely fantastic. I think it's excellent. And uh, that's, that's all I want to say. Like, there's, um, there's a lot of interesting things I think about relationships and and i think it's a real interesting twist on the kind of like secret agent spy contract person thing um i also love how every episode they have like tremendous supporting characters that come in right like usually in a show <laughs> like this you've got your leads and then the people who are like the supporting characters are kind of you know they're they're character um, actors character actors yeah but this is like fucking Skarsgård and Paul Dano and John Turturro and Parker Posey and, you know, like they come in. Wagner Mora or Wagner Mora um, that come in, you know. Ron Perlman, you know. And then, of course, Donald Glover. And I'd never even seen her before, but is it, I don't know how you say her last name, but is it Maya Erskine? Erskine? Erskine, yeah. Erskine? Erskine. She's fuck. They're fucking amazing. It's so yeah, good. Just across so the good. board. Yeah. And it's... Uh, Hiro Murai is one of the kind of like creators of this as well who's also been involved uh, with Atlanta so it's got a lot of like an Atlanta feeling to it but it's created mm -hmm. by um, Francesca Sloan and Donald Glover and it's um, so it's got a little bit of like some of the absurdism that you get in Atlanta but without the without the the same social commentary so it doesn't go into some of those darker spaces but it's like a total mm -hmm. it's a total inversion of the spy genre and i think it's really excellent um also with how it deals with interpersonal relations their relationship is just it, the stuff they go through and how they work through things and talk through things and how they confront certain challenges i think is amazing and and i'm only a handful of episodes in so 
uh, I haven't even reached the kind of conclusion of this series, which I imagine is just continually building. Um, you can already see some of it, and some of it is just, yeah, I just think it's excellent. So I, I, um, I definitely want to recommend that. Yeah, I think it's, I've only seen two episodes, but I think it's, I was imagining some of the sort of middling reviews being basically like, the movie was so sexy and like yeah. charismatic and whatnot. And this, this one is not sexy in that way, right? It's mm. not like winking at you. It's not seducing you. It's not seductive in that way. Uh, mm-hmm. It's like slow kind of. And there's, it's like, it's got action and it's funny. And I think I enjoy watching every moment of it, but it's not surface level trying to entertain you, right? I was, I was thinking as I was watching it actually about your comment that, um, you've been craving mature mm. media. And even though this has all the trappings of like, it's a spy show, right? It's got, you know, a, a big actor in it and lots of big co-stars. Um, and there's like a case of the, the first two episodes at least have kind of a case of the week kind of feel to it. It's, it's more mature. Like it's building this relationship mm. and showing some of the mundane parts of it. Right. That's and it. just dealing with like real adult people, who have adult yes. concerns with the background of like, oh, but they're also spies. <laughs> yes. Which is a funny kind of tension, right? Um, and I love that part of it, right? I really, really love that part of it that I that these seem like real, normal, individual people who I can kind of fall for, as you would fall for um, an individual person the more you get to know them. Yes. Well, one of the ways I think that it that is able to it's not seductive in the in the in the kind of Brad Pitt Angelina Jolie sense, but one of the ways that I do think it's yeah not titillating it, yeah it's not titillating, but I do think it's seductive. But one of the ways I think it's able to do that is by its use of long shots or long takes mm. or static camera, um, where it's it's not using fast cuts to edit through a scene. You will get a full dialogue scene. Where like you're sitting there and you're like, what is going on? Is this building for something crazy? Is something crazy? Like it builds attention. So it pulls you in by kind of making you uncomfortable because you're just participating in this, these people trying to figure out how to be in a situation that is totally extraordinary, right? Mm, Yeah. And to me, that's what's most interesting because then you see you can't avoid the human. When you use fast cuts and when it's titillating and it's slick and it's and it's sexy, you you can really smooth out the edges. But this show doesn't allow the edges to be smoothed out. You know, they will come, they will appear because the camera just lingers for just a little bit too long, you know? Or the scene just goes on for a little bit too long. And I think there's something actually really amazing in that there's something actually that i think kind of fits into like what what schrader talks about when he talks about like the transcendental style in film and we were talking about it the other day um at the house here when we were watching it and we were like oh it's, it's filmed much more like like cinema than it is tv which tv is yeah is is known for like slickness quick get in get out get the commercials in move on to the next episode leave on a cliffhanger you know that kind of thing this is much more of a of a of a slow of a slow brew and, and because of that, I think it makes it – that's that where that maturity comes from because the maturity comes from having to sit and think and actually deal with shit, not being able to just move on and bounce you know, around. Yeah, I like that idea. A lot of the distinction between like a kind of seduction that's titillation and a kind of seduction that's the slow developing of 
an attraction and not just like a surface level attraction, but like an attraction to like to care, to care about a thing. Right. And there's mm. something about the fast cut, you know, TV style is even more prevalent. I think I'm like YouTube, right, where you're supposed to make cuts every three seconds or something like that. It's <laughs> kind of rule about having a, yeah. like a YouTube video that doesn't get turned off. Is you have to have a cut every three seconds or something. <laughs> and that that's mm. like that's a kind of titillation. Like it's just trying to grab your your surface level attention, but not your care or concern. Right. Mm. And I, I really like that the show is trying to not just like like bring back the old style, but just do it differently than that. It's not trying to tell yeah. you. It's not trying to merely grab your attention away from your phone or whatever. Right. Um, and that's a, that's a nice sea change. And I hope mm. that more people watch it, even though it didn't get um, like glowing reviews. Hopefully once people finish it and, and stuff, they'll, they'll be able to um, appreciate that part of it. Do you think any, any, any reason, like any part of it's like the fact that the show was, um, it was dropped all at once or it's coming out weekly? I, I don't know because I'm only seeing it now when I think it is all released because we're able. So I think it was dropped all at once, but I don't know. Yeah, I think it probably was, which is strange, right? Because I feel like it cuts against the idea of this like slow mm. appreciation where you watch one a week and you think about it and you talk about it and you mull over it unconsciously. And then you go to the I next think it's one. hard to binge this show. After one or two episodes, I'm like, okay. That it, because it moves the pace that it does, yeah. it's like, like I I can't imagine. I mean, it, I yeah, yeah I, I I don't think that you could binge it. I mean, I'm sure someone could, but like, I would be willing to bet you that there's like some sort of evidence to suggest that people who are watching like one or two or three episodes are kind of like okay. Whereas you know, with other shows, you fucking you before you know it, you've watched six, seven, eight episodes or the whole season. You know, I just don't think that this show is constructed in a way that it would produce that type of watching habit. Yeah. It's not trying to cliffhanger you into watching the next episode, um, which is a nice, nice, like respectful way of treating the audience too, which I appreciate. Um, Me too. But I do wish they kind of go away from this model of dropping things all at once. The Netflix pretty much always does. And Amazon seems to be doing too. And um, I hate that. Hmm. Not no. looking forward to when three body problem is dropped by Netflix all at once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, sick. We'll go ahead and end the episode there. Thank you all for tuning in to another. Um, as I said at the top, please go ahead and give us a, a follow uh, at our various places. You can shoot us an email. I was at donpodcast at gmail.com. Um, you know, reviews, all that other good shit. Uh, Patreon, patreon.com slash owls at dawn. Check your emails or rush over to Patreon so you can see um, how you can vote in the poll um, for choosing our next episode that is the patron chosen episode. Throw us some pennies if you can, if you're not already a patron. And I think that's pretty much everything, unless there's something that I forgot to say, brother. Just one more thing I can think of, dude. What's that? Das the Donny, Amerikanski. Yeah.